realize that we were we were talking yesterday about the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount and uh, I kept my mouth shut <laughs> so it wasn't by design that we're studying the same kind of things today in fact I feel a little bit bad we should have this is the class we probably should have had yesterday or last week uh, in, in anticipation of that but I'm not trying to run parallel with the church lessons because we're looking at a broader picture but this is one of those times that the two are going to kind of come together rather nicely Okay, uh, so that said, let's, let's dive into this. Now, as we get started here, um, by the way, I, I hear some of you are reading, kind of looking through some of the books, uh, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Simply Jesus, and all that. How's that coming? Have good experiences? Okay. It is funny, by the way, I was, I was listening to some, somebody by N.T. Wright who wrote Simply Jesus. And sometimes you see them kind of walled in by their evangelical or by, by, their, by their cultural tradition. Uh, where he's wondering about the fact that they weren't going to need temples anymore and Jesus was the temple. And that, oh, if I could just, if you just get the rest of the gospel, we, we would take all this wonderful knowledge that you have and jump it up to the next level. So, uh, yeah, I hope you're having a good experience uh, with that. Um, in fact, I'm going to draw real heavily on another book, uh, probably in just a few weeks, called The Good Shepherd. Uh, talking about the shepherd tradition starting from uh, uh, Psalm 23 all the way through John 16 and it's just this beautiful it, it's, it's a broader more deeper more consistent image that goes all the way through the generations than, than really I understood so that's going to be I'm looking forward to that okay so let's start with a couple of reminders number one the writer of the Gospel of Matthew writing to, was writing to Jewish readers and he sought to position Jesus as the new Moses. If he was going to have, if there was going to be some conversion of those that were Jewish, they had to have some, uh, something they could hang it to. And he needed to see, needed them to see in every way, you need to trust this Jesus because he is the new Moses. He does Moses-like things, and he was prophesied by Moses to be who he is. So follow him because Moses has kind of returned, in a sense. Okay? Now, Jesus himself, in his actions, seems to be encouraging this comparison in various ways, including control over the elements... He's changing water to wine. He's calming the seas. He's walking on the water. Uh, he seems to have some control over the elements in a way that, that would hearken very strongly back to Moses parting the Red Sea and all of that. Okay? Now, and nowhere is this more evident than the delivery of a new law delivered on a mount to multitudes who had just been delivered from various forms of physical bondage. Now, I'm going to apologize here for a sec because uh, for those of you who got the email yesterday, I've kind of wrapped this up and I thought, well, I'll get it out early and so you have time in the morning to study. And I sent this thing out and everything. <coughs> 
And then after I did that, the insight started rolling in. And I thought, well, it's too late. The you know, I don't want to send out another PowerPoint. Um, so so this will be kind of the updated PowerPoint uh, in addition to the one I sent out because I suddenly started to realize some things that kind of smacked me in the face a bit when I really started taking a look at that, something that I had missed or sort of understand but hadn't really delved into. And I really want to do that today because it'll make the, it makes the uh, Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain just jump. Okay? So let me start with this little question here. Was the Sermon on the Mount, this new law, was it really a new law or was it a restoration of a much older law? Let, let, let me broaden that. Was the gospel of the good news that Jesus brought, was this a new teaching or was this a restoration of a much older teaching? Wouldn't it have been a restoration because when the children of Israel were, he had to give them the, this, this law. So it had to have been... A restoration of a much older law. Taught when and where? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve would have had it. Pre-existence. Maybe even the pre-existence. Okay. Do we have evidence? See, part of what I, when I realized this, I thought, do we have in our scriptures, do we have evidence that there was, that what Jesus was teaching was, was a restoration of an older one, and where would we go to find it? Yeah. Well, my, my thoughts were maybe unique, but we don't really. No, I went and I couldn't find exactly what Enoch was teaching, but we're going to guess, aren't we, that says if, if this is really, if Jesus was, was bringing a restoration, in the same way that Joseph Smith brought a restoration, then certainly Enoch, whatever was going on in Enoch and whatever was going on in the city of Enoch sacrament meetings, would have been really familiar to what happened in our church yesterday. Or would have been really similar maybe to what was happening in Corinth or Ephesus or Capernaum. True? In other words, have we, all these years have we misnamed the Bible? What if the Bible should have been the Old Testament and the Older Testament? <laughs> Would that make sense? Okay. Now, let me give you an example of that. Uh, here's, here, when I went looking, here's, here's what I found. Um, this actually comes from Moses 6. And this is uh, the Lord speaking to Adam. And he says, It's given unto your children to know good from evil. Wherefore they are agents unto themselves, and I have given unto you another law and commandment. Different law from what? What was the other law he gave him? Don't eat the fruit. <laughs> and sacrifice. But now he's saying, okay, here is another law I'm giving to you, Adam, and to your children. And what would you guess that law was? 
it ought to sound really similar to the law that was that you'll read in the Book of Mormon. It's this. Wherefore, teach it unto your children that all men everywhere must repent, or they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. For no unclean thing can dwell there and dwell in his presence. For in the language of Adam, man of holiness is his name, and the name of his only begotten is the Son of Man, even Jesus Christ, a righteous judge who will do what? Come in the meridian of time. So he's saying, what is, the, what is this new law that I'm going to teach to you and your children? Repent and baptize, get baptized and believe on Jesus, Jesus Christ, who will come in the meridian of time, about 4,000 years down the road. But this is the law, this was the gospel being taught to Adam's posterity. So what a shocker. What is it that when the Son of Man comes in the meridian of time, what is it he's teaching? <clears throat> this gospel. So let me ask, when did this gospel get lost? When did this gospel stop being taught? Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's where they became so, so, so to some, we don't have the teachings, do we? But Abraham was, was going to teach that. He'd have taught that to Isaac. Isaac would have taught that to Jacob. Uh, Jacob would have taught it to the brothers, some of which were listening. Most were not. And then they go off into Egypt. And what religion do we get then in Egypt for 400 years? Egyptian. <laughs> For 400 years they were pretty Egyptian with like these like this roots, this history. It's almost it parallels very closely what happens with the children of Mulek who come to the new world, they establish the city of Zarahemla, but for 400 years they don't have a written gospel and everything. What gospel were they teaching? Probably Mayan. And they, they don't have the gospel until Mosiah the first comes and King Benjamin and they teach them the gospel. And so what Moses what Mosiah Mosesiah not an accident, what Mosesiah was teaching was a restoration. So what you've had is the God, over, over the history of the years, the, the Lord will give them the gospel, there's a falling away, and then there will be a restoration. And then there's a gospel, and a falling away, and a restoration. And it's just the cycle of things. And we've seen it over and over and over. So if you begin to look at what Jesus is now teaching, like Mark says, there's, they're like, this is a new law, we've never heard this before. And in, all, and in all actuality, it is a, it's a restoration. It's the oldest gospel. How come it was never taught to them? Well, in the writing of the Hebrew Bible and the changes that Josiah made in the Deuteronomist, they kind of got rid of the old gospel.
Okay, does that make sense? Okay. So, as a prelude to this new law, Watch how the Savior sets this up, and it's really kind of very cool. And, and again, I, I learned a number of things this week as I was looking at this. Um, what happens if we go to Luke 6 is that Luke says that the Savior, uh, as, the, as he begins to roll forward, it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he named apostles. So there are already people starting to follow him, and now it's time to start structuring this gospel and starting to give it a teaching, and, and now here comes the information, and it's time to reveal this. But, but he does it in a, in a very, very cool way, if you watch carefully what he does. So he's going to choose 12, and then what is it he taught them? Well, I believe that, he, that we have a peeking into what exactly did he teach the apostles. I don't, uh, almost certainly on the, the night before the... Uh, Sermon on the Mount could have been later but I think it, was, it would make sense and I'll show you why in a second what exactly did he teach them well let's go for just a second down to uh, let's see let's go to section 84 the Doctrine and Covenants section 84 uh, brethren, what's what's section 84? The oath and covenant of the priesthood. And it's going to talk about the fact that um, Moses really, really wanted his people to see the Savior. To see the face of God. And it says they refused. And I won't go into... We can spend a lot of time on that. I, I'm not going to go through time and chew on that. But says they didn't. Then it gives the whole lineage of all the priesthood holders all the way through section 84, all the way down. Then they did this. They passed this along, father to son, and they got a... And then we get to this part. Verse uh, 64. Let me do this. See if that's easier. Therefore, as I said unto my, mine apostles, I say unto you again. So here's something that he taught his apostles. And he's teaching this in 1832. But he's saying, okay, I'm going to tell you in 1832 the same thing I told my apostles when I was on the earth. What did he teach them? That every soul who believeth on your words and is baptized by water for the remission of sin shall receive the Holy Ghost. What gospel is that? It's Jesus. But where, what is Jesus, when was this first taught? All the way back to Adam. Remember, that's the gospel. 
Believe on my name, be baptized. This is the original gospel. And he says, I taught it to my apostles when I was with them. Wow, okay, so here's the original. This is the Adam gospel that he's teaching to Peter, James, and John. And what exactly did he tell them beyond that? Well, look at this. He says... Uh, be baptized for the remission of sins, and they shall receive the Holy Ghost. And these signs shall follow them that believe. If you want to know when the true gospel is on the earth, he says, these are the signs that will tell you the gospel's here. This is how you will know. Then he says, these signs shall follow them. In my name they shall do many wonderful works. In my name they shall cast out devils. In my name they shall heal the sick. In my name they shall open the eyes of the blind. Unstop the ears of the deaf. The tongue of the dumb shall speak. And if any man shall minister poison unto them, it shall not hurt them. Wow. These signs, these healings, are going to be the sign of what? What is it telling anybody who might have eyes to see? This is the, kingdom of God. the kingdom of God is here. Yeah. It's present. And we know from section 84 he's saying the kingdom of God is present because the priesthood is present. And how do we know that the kingdom of God is here and the priesthood is here? There are signs. What's the signs? The healings. Those healings will be taking place. That's how anybody wants to know. Now, for all of the wonderfulness of the, of, um, the Temple of Solomon and the wonderfulness that that was, when we're reading through the Old Testament, how many times do we see in the Old Testament, um, in, the name, in thy name they'll cast out devils, they shall heal the sick, the eyes of the open will be blind, unstop the ears of the deaf. Where are we getting all of those signs? In the Old Testament. You're not. They're not happening after Egypt. Why? The priesthood's gone. And the kingdom is not there. What's in its place? The law of Moses, which was the preparatory thing to get them there. But it was not going to be the original gospel yet. Because there are signs that follow the original gospel. Because when the gospel is here and the full priesthood is here, all of these wonderful signs occur. And so imagine, if you will, he takes the, he ta he, he takes the disciples up on the, hit, up on the mountain and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you what's really going on here. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom is here. How will we know? I'm going to set you apart as the twelve and in my name you will do what? Heal. Miracles. These things will happen. And that will be a sign to anybody who knows that the kingdom has arrived. Yesterday in uh, Sunday school, 
I have some scriptures. Yeah. See, I'm, it's really good we're doing this today. You guys would have been so dangerous yesterday. <laughs> so obnoxious. It's better off that we're just doing it today. I was hoping that they didn't have time for me. I, figured, I didn't understand where Jesus said to his disciples, you know, uh, there'll be some that'll come to me saying, you know, I healed the sick. Yeah. And all this stuff. And I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Yeah. Yeah, because you'll get some of these false heat teachings, right? Sometimes people's faith or healing, they're, they're believing on Jesus. Right. Uh, it's just that sometimes people are believing on Jesus, a gospel has been taught, and then somebody else is getting the credit for it. <laughs> and then Joseph Smith's translation was that he knew them. Yeah, that's right. Hang on to that one. We're probably we're probably going there. Uh, we're going to see how far we get today in all of this. We're going to see uh, exactly what we're doing next week. I don't know yet. <laughs> Depends on just kind of what fun we have on this stuff. Okay, questions so far? This really should be kind of a, we know it, but it ought to be kind of revolutionary if you let it sink into you. To say that Jesus was restoring an older gospel. That, by the way, who taught it originally? Uh, he did. <laughs> As Jehovah. So there was nothing new here to him, but it was completely new to people that for hundreds of years had just had the law of Moses. So I believe, so he's going to say, um, What if it's emphasized that with every dispensation, you know, there was a falling away, there was an apostasy, but every time when it came back, where do you think these same things were taught with each restoration? Yeah, he says every time that there was apostasy, then these things would have to be taught again. So, so we get these apostasy moments, and then it's got to be brought back. So, so let, let me give you an example of that. In the Book of Mormon, remember that when, when King Benjamin gets up, and he's starting to teach the rudimentary structure of this gospel that had not been taught for 400 years... To the, to the Nephites, the combined Nephites and, and uh, Mulekites, and he brings them all together, and he stands up and he says, I'm going to give you a new king, and by the way, I'm going to teach you a gospel. And where did, he, where did he get the gospel? He says, last night an angel came to me. An angel had to come and bring the gospel from on high to say, there's nobody on the earth that can tell you this, so I'm going to bring you the gospel by an angel. Angels oftentimes have to restore the gospel so that they can now teach the new good news, which is really the old good news. <laughs> that's happened in every other generation. And so that's, that's definitely what's happened here. Only in this case, we're not having to send an angel because the, the master healer is here himself. Yeah? Are we the only religion who believes that this is... Yes. Yeah, and I believe, thank you for that. I believe that this is one of those things that would make us completely unique. I don't know that there's another religion on the planet that would be able to say what Jesus taught was a restoration of the prior gospel. Now, by the way, I'll tell you who else knows this. 
Paul knows this. When we get into talking about Paul, you're going you're, you're gonna to be able to see clearly he totally, totally, totally gets this. That this isn't just a brand new gospel dump, dump Judaism. He's going to say, this is the a re returning of the gospel of the covenant of Abraham and all the blessings given to Abraham and what we're doing is we're bringing the Gentiles into the Abrahamic covenant. That's what we're doing. It isn't like forget Judaism. No, we're going we're gonna, to to the Ephesian saints, he's going to say Gentiles, you are no longer foreigners and, but fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God under the blessings of Abraham. So Judaism is still alive, but in its original form, taught to Abraham, not the one that was deluded by Moses. Okay, yeah. It's really too bad because if people, other religions, had this concept that maybe that wasn't a new law and that these things keep getting restored again, then the concept of the restoration of the gospel now wouldn't be so foreign and radical. Yeah, she says if, if other religions had a, had a view that this was a restoration, it actually opens the door to restorations. It opens the door to additional knowledge, to additional gospel, and, and, and that the heavens should remain open. And that from time to time it falls apart. It, it goes wonky on us, and we need angels, or the Lord, or prophet to say, okay, we've gone off the path, and I'm not going to create something out of whole cloth. We need to get back to Adam's gospel. It was taught originally. Okay. Now, how are we going to know? Well, signs are going to follow. Yeah. I have kind of a weird question. If those are the signs, which are the miracles, yeah. we have the priesthood. Mm -hmm. um, why is it that some of the general authorities obviously have the capacity to do that? Why don't we hear from time to time like they heard in Jesus' time? Uh, about these great miracles and stuff like that? in our time, but I still them. We don't know them. Why do they not... Yeah, they're not really broadcast so much. Uh, although, you know, if I, if I were just to ask just by a raise of hands, any of you have been aware of the power of priesthood blessings? Right? It happens. It's just, it's a very quiet, subtle thing that's, that's going on. Yeah? Uh, uh, 73 in the NCA 4 says, But a commandment I give unto you, that they shall not boast themselves. You know, that's true. Yeah. So we'll kind of keep it to ourselves a little bit. We try and keep it a little bit on the on the down low. Yeah. Sometimes they're shared in general conference and um, in the enzyme stories. Uh, you can capture some of the miracles there. Yeah, but but it's not necessary. We don't have the we don't have the moments, for instance, of President Nelson walking, you know, into a conference and there's a lame man right there and he yeah. says, "Pick up your bed and walk," and he walks. <laughs> you know, it's not. We don't get those kind of dramatic kind of things. Could he? Yes, he he really could. Yeah, here and then here. I think the importance of all those incidents or examples of healing is that the word Savior literally means healing. It does. Salvation is the process of healing. And as you pointed out, this goes back to Adam. And so what is the healing? And the healing is of the broken hearts that we experience from the shame of not being perfect, uh, living up, you know, being 100% obedient, those sorts of things. Yeah, the, the, that healing is going to take place not just physically, but it's going to take... Yeah, and we're going to get to that. That's a great point. Yeah. Also, depend the faith of the person who received the blessing. 
Yeah. The president of the church came to us and, and I feeling something in God there and, and give me a blessing. But if I don't have the faith, it won't work. How many of us, you know, let's say that you've got cancer or leukemia or something like that that would really, really believe, I hear that President Nielsen's coming to speak. And if I can just be on the sidewalk somewhere near, and if I can just reach up and touch the bottom of his suit coat, <laughs> I will be healed. So that it, do we have the same level of faith? I don't know. Um, I'll tell you who I would think might have that ability is our African saints. <laughs> our African saints are so simple and clean in their, in their faith. That just wouldn't shock me at all to find out that somebody in Zimbabwe or something like that. And, and we might have those stories, but we're just not hearing them because uh, we're not getting all those cultural things from the other. So that wouldn't shock me at all. Okay, yeah. Couldn't, I mean, medicine and science is miracles. Mm -hmm. yes. and, and, and yes, and, and, and a lot of, that's a good point. Those at Jesus' time that were healed and everything, the, we didn't have all of the medical science that we have, so he was it. So maybe there was a greater need that he do that. That great point. I hadn't thought of that. And it comes from him. Yeah. Um, I mean, the last restoration and, you know, promise not fall away, and why? Why we are? Uh, we, we often there's a word I'm confusing to fall away from the narrow straight path and fall away the uh, apostasy. And why there won't be another apostasy in the climate? Ah, uh, such a good question. <laughs> you know, she 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 says so. So why is it that these days that there won't be another falling away? That this is, this is the last restoration. And in fact, Joseph was told that this was the restoration of all things in the fullness of times. Jesus comes in the meridian time. Meridian meaning halfway. That, that part of what was revealed to Joseph was that this was the fullness of time. And President, or Elder Holland gave a great talk a number of years ago talking about the fact that this is the last time and that there will not be a falling away and that all the prior prophets of all the dispensations have looked forward to this day when, it, when the gospel will finally not be taken. There won't be a, a, a falling away this time. Uh, and that, that's a joyful kind of thing prior to the second coming. That there had to be a church prepared that would be waiting for him when he came. The bride had to be dressed and ready. So, so we get this. Oh, let's see. I guess we ought to get this. Okay. So with that as a setting, if you understand that we're now talking about a restoration and a restoring, now it's time for Jesus to restore. And, and so the setting is going to be that I'm, I need to begin to revamp all of this and do this in a way I've got to teach the real gospel. Now watch how he does this though. In Matthew... Matthew says a crowd followed him, many from uh, Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Here, here's basically what he's saying. And you just have to kind of picture this. You've got, 
you got the Sea of Galilee, you got the, the River Jordan, and then you got the Dead Sea down here with Jerusalem over here. And here's what he's saying. A crowd followed him, many from Galilee, from Decapolis, which was the ten cities on the east side of the Jordan River, over here, the Decapolis. They're coming from Galilee. They're coming from Decapolis. They're coming from Jerusalem. They're coming from Judea. And they're coming from beyond the Jordan. That would be Jordan today. That would, so now we're talking about the Idumeans. And we're talking about uh, uh, Petra. And all those people, the Arabs down here. So he's basically saying they're coming from here and here and here and here and there. <laughs> you know, picture they're coming from everywhere. everywhere. And they're coming from all the corners of this land. So you, you get that? And so he's really wanting you to see everybody's coming. The Gentiles are coming from Decapolis. The Arabs are coming from beyond the Jordan. Uh, the Judeans are coming here. And the Galileans, everybody's showing up. Okay? So they're all coming. When he saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. Um, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, the beautiful thing about understanding who Matthew's writing to and who Luke is writing to is you'll get to see their two approaches. Okay? Matthew is saying the most important thing here is the fact that people were coming from all over to hear him. And he sat down and taught them. Now, Luke has already told us one other thing. What's happening just before this? What did Luke just tell us? He went up the mountain and did what? He prayed. And then what? And then he calls his apostles. So prior to this moment, he has been up the mountain. He took his disciples with him. He set apart 12 apostles. And then Luke says, then he came back down the mountain. So this is after the this is after this kind of solemn assembly up on top. He's now going to come down the mountain. And so you really kind of have three groups of people. You got the apostles, you got disciples, and you got the crowds. Now, he says he came down with the disciples and stood on a level spot with a crowd of his disciples here and a large group of people and then from all Judea and Jerusalem and Tyre and Sidon. Luke's adding more to it. It's not just the Gentiles in the Decapolis on the east side of Jerusalem. He's going, Tyre and Sidon, those guys higher up on the, on the coast. They're Gentiles coming from all over the place. And they're all coming to do what? Be healed. There, the word has gone out. There is a healer in the land. And he's healing everybody. And they are coming from all corners. But Luke is going to tell you 
uh, and, and Luke's going to make the, the, the throwing in not just of Decapolis by Matthew but Tyre and Sidon who's Luke writing to? Gentiles he needs you to see that these guys are being healed as well this is a this is a global outreach to the extent they were doing global outreach back then. Okay, so uh, from Judea and Jerusalem and Tyre and Sidon near the seashore. Okay, then what's going to happen? And they came to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses, and those troubled by unclean spirits were healed, and the whole crowd went to touch him because power went from him and he healed every one now stop for a second what did the what did the savior say to Joseph Smith and to the 12 in 1832 signs will follow when what when the gospel's here these will be the signs. You'll know that the full priesthood is here. You'll know that the signs are here. Why? Because the healings are happening. They are. Look at what's going on. And so isn't it interesting? So, so picture what's happened. He, he's going to take the twelve. He's going to teach them. He's going to set apart the twelve. These are now my twelve apostles. Okay, now, guys, you will know when the gospel is fully here, when you watch the lame being made to walk, the blind being able to see, uh, evil spirits being cast out, you're going to know that that's when that's happening. Wow. Okay. All right. Let's go down the mountain. What do we see? Oh, there are people coming from all over the world. They're all showing up here. They're using the Galilee. It's probably tons of people, uh, boats, everybody is packed down there. And so with them watching, with the disciples and the apostles watching, what does he do? He goes down and he heals every one. What did he just tell the apostles? Thy kingdom is come. The world, it's here. It has arrived. The full gospel is here in its fullness. And you're, I told you what to look for, and then I did it. <laughs> and it's happening. And I think that's magnificent, I think. It's just such a beautiful moment. Um, and by the way, I think... Uh, and then it says, after he did all of that, then he lifted up his eyes to who? I know it's small. <laughs> he lifted up his eyes to the, his disciples and said, which is the same thing that Matthew says, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. Who is the Sermon on the Mount given to? The disciples. According to the Joseph's Yes. Was taken out. Yes. Yeah. He's, yeah, go ahead and say it again. It's interesting that in the Joseph Smith translation, it delineates that this was to the disciples. Jo yeah, Joseph Smith is trying, actually, his translation doubles down to say, this was given to the disciples. Uh, Third Nephi, by the way, says the same thing, that this was given to the disciples. But I really need you to picture kind of what's happening here because in my mind this is the coolest part of this. So, so you have Jesus with he's he's with the 12 
They're disciples. He sets apart the twelve. He can look down the mountain. Um, and by the way, this is the traditional spot. This is the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Um, the Sea of Galilee was a little higher. This plain was probably filled in a little bit more. They think it was a couple of feet higher during the first century, but basically that's it. And so you get the mountains, and you get the, these up, this upper region up here. Um, and so it's really, really easy to see at this point where he could, could have been up in one of these mountains. Uh, it's a little higher over here than it is here. But they could come down, they could be up here somewhere, come down, and then there's a planal region here where, where this was taught. Somewhere up here. We know it's close to Capernaum, which is like around the horn over here. Um, but this is traditionally the spot. So up in the mountains, he comes down, and, and the people are kind of camped out down on the plain. So I think, I, I happen to believe Matthew's account and Luke's accounts are the same story. It's just that Luke has repackaged it a little bit different. But we call that one the Sermon on the Plain. Anyway. But picture what's happened. Jesus takes the disciples up on the mountain. He teaches them. He sets apart the twelve. He teaches them. Here's what the gospel will look like. And I, I suspect he probably said, and by the way, this is the same gospel that Adam had. This is the same gospel that Enoch had. <coughs> I'm restoring all of this. Okay? So he gets all of this. They're ready. Then what do they do? They look down. Here's the crowds gathering on the seashore. Great. They come marching down the hill. They're probably following Jesus down there. Jesus says, you know, wait here. He steps down. And this massive healing goes on. The kingdom has arrived. Everybody's being healed. Just the way it's always been promised. They're all healed. And they're all feeling better. And then it then says, then what does he do? Then it says he turns and speaks to the disciples. And here comes the sermon. Here comes the new law from the lawgiver. Now, if you're a disciple or in one of the apostles and you followed him down the hill and there's Jesus right there and you're watching, wow, he does all of this healing. All of these people are being healed. Then Jesus turns and looks back up at you. When you're looking at Jesus, what are you seeing? Savior. You're seeing the Savior, and what is right over his shoulders? The, the crowds, the people that he just healed. This to me is like one of the greatest object moment teaching spots in all history. <laughs> I told you what to look for. I just did it. Now in that setting, let me teach you the Sermon on the Mount. And so now when we're going to start talking about the meek and the poor and all those kind of stuff, what are they looking at? The meek and the poor, you know, and the, and the poor in spirit and all. They're all there. They're all there. And they're, and they're probably, if they were lame all their life and they just got healed and they were blind all their life and now they're seen and they've been troubled by evil spirits and now they're calm and peaceful, they're sitting there in awe and gratitude and love. Now, I think they can hear the, the sermon. But isn't it interesting that really what he's saying to them is, here's the other object lesson, 
Let me show you what I'm teaching in my kingdom. Here's my disciples. Okay. Blessed are the meek, <laughs> you know, and they're getting a chance to hear. This is, even if you didn't believe, you were just in a, a Gentile in Decapolis or a Gentile in Tyre, and you're coming and you're listening to this man who just healed you, who then says, and blessed are the poor in spirit. These guys are believers. They're learning. They're growing. This might be your first introduction to the new law. Was it effective? Oh man, oh, this, I just think this is just such an incredible moment that just blows me away. Okay, does this make sense? You just have to be very visual with this moment to see what's going on. And then, and then the, the Sermon on the Mount ought to just jump out at you because now you can see the context. Okay, yeah. Uh huh. He's coming and going, and he thinks that he turned on the Lord when he united Christ. But I think the time of Peter's actual conversion is that he had the opportunity to use the priesthood like Christ did, and he starts healing. And I think that's probably when he's fighting his understanding of what he's calling it. I think there's a difference for all of us. This is an individual. Even though, even though Peter's seeing the whole crowd and he's witnessing it, I think we each have to have that individual. Oh yeah, yeah. I think so too. Where we're we're actually part of it and we're participating in that. It's one thing to hear about like uh, people joining the church. It's another thing to participate in the conversion of somebody to the church. When we actually that's hands-on experience. Because remember, it's not long after this he's going to say to them, "Go have a mission experience." Because he will send them out. And they're going to have great experiences. And then he, and then it, remember, he, remember that we get this moment and it's coming when he's up on the Mount of Transfiguration and things are going great. And then they come down out of the Mount of Transfiguration and the first thing they run into is healings that aren't working. <laughs> We're trying here, Lord, and this one isn't, you know, they, these guys aren't coming out. And the Savior goes, okay, let me take care of it. <laughs> Takes care of it. Now let's have a lesson. <laughs> Because they had to learn to have enough faith to do that. And it had to be hands-on. Like Peter seeking in the water. Yeah. Peter came out. He, he did it fine. Yes. The, the, he wasn't the, doubting when he came out. That's right. Then he doubts. And then, then, we, then we learn. Then he seeks. Then we doubt. Then we learn. Okay. So, if you have, the, have this scene in mind. Okay, now. And we got 30 minutes. Okay. <laughs> Now, there's a couple of things that I want to kind of point out here. And it, it'll, make, it'll make a complete difference about how you see the Beatitudes. We start with the Beatitudes. Um, Matthew starts with the Beatitudes. Gospel scholar said, The word for blessed in Hebrew... Asher and Makaros, Makaros, in Greek, are part of word clusters that, as one scholar notes, they are not part of a wish and to not invoke a blessing. Rather, they recognize, listen closely, an existing state of happiness or good fortune. Now, let's sink in for just a second. That is, they affirm a quality of spirituality that is already 
present. That ought to change how you look at the Beatitudes. So let me say it. Then he says it different. As a group, the Beatitudes do not mean blessed are the people who do X because they'll get Y. That's not what that means. They should be read with the sense, look at the joy of these people who have already been given X. We have, we have always had this tendency to say, blessed are those that become meek because someday they'll inherit the earth. So they need to get meek so that they will inherit the earth. And what he's saying is, look at the blessed state of those that are meek, knowing that they will inherit the earth. What, how blessed are they? Because we're almost saying the blessing doesn't happen until you get the thing that you were looking for. That's not what the phrase means. It means, what a blessed state it is. Um, it's like saying, blessed are grandparents grand, uh, because they will love their grandchildren. As opposed to saying, what a blessed state of grandparents who love their grandchildren. They're in that blessed state right now. And they're enjoying it. Or what a blessed state you are in now because you know what's coming. What a blessed state you're in because you know you're going on vacation next week. <laughs> Some, yeah, the, even if it's a little bit in the future, it's a blessed state of happiness that you're in right at the moment. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, the blessed state is the kingdom of God. You know, just prior, prior to this was the discussion where he, he's talking about the Jubilee. Uh, so the people are liberated from their debt and all of that. More importantly, they're liberated from their sin. You know, and now they are free. Yeah. And all of this, I think, is we're blessed because we get to see all of this reading it just back to back. I don't know exactly what those people experienced because they didn't have the big picture. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. No, it doesn't. And they were trying to move them forward. Now, this might be something that the words are being used in the Greek, so it's being taught to people who understand the word blessed and understand which words they're actually using, meaning that it's a blessed state right now. Sometimes we're going, well, Blessed are Latter-day Saints because one day they won't be stuck in sacrament meetings with high counselors and they'll be in heaven. <laughs> you know, we're saying, no, blessed are Latter-day Saints because you live in a blessed community of saints to begin with. And there is great stuff coming. But the blessed, the, the blessed experience is right now. It's a community. And that is very Middle Eastern. Uh, and we'll talk about that more when we get into shepherds. But anyway, all right, all right. Does that make sense? So, so we'll use that to frame it as we look as we start taking a look at a couple of these. Uh, and by the way, that's that's coming through. That's Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes, chapter nine. So, all right. So let's start. Uh, the poor. And again, watch, watch, watch the disciples and the apostles looking over the Savior's shoulder. And are they seen poor? 
Oh man, they're all there. There's multitudes of them there. They've kind of dragged themselves there. They're, they've still probably got their their little uh, electric chairs and their uh, <laughs> their, their beds that they got dragged there on, and they're kind of so there they are. Here's the poor. Now, interesting split between Matthew and what Matthew does with this and most writers do with this and what Luke does with this. And both I think are really applicable. Matthew, King James Version. Blessed are the poor where? In spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Luke uh, writing to Gentiles is going to change this and put a, a particular spin on this. I don't think it's not that Luke doesn't understand the poor in spirit, but Luke is going to say, uh, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And to, then he doubles down on it. And what he does about Ten verses later, he comes back around as, as part of kind of a poetry kind of thing. He's going to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. But woe unto you who are rich, because you have received your consolation. So, lest we misunderstand, Paul is saying, or Luke is saying, no, it's about the poor. Matthew says, this is poor in spirit. You could be rich or poor financially, but it's about being poor in spirit. And Luke in his writing says, I'm, I'm going to write to a particular group, blessed are you who are poor financially. Two different audience, but, but, often, but, but let me ask you this. How often are poor financially also poor in spirit? Generally. It's the case. Yeah. Lady in the back. I think it's very interesting that the uh, the people who are there to hear them, the people who have come from all over the place, because there's something that they need, and they may also be very poor. Yeah. You know, you don't know. But um, they're supplicants. They're and Jarius that we just uh, discussed not too long ago. You know, the master of the synagogue. Okay. Yeah. Thought that he would have been Rich. well off financially, you know, the highest person in the area. He's a supplicant. He needs. Just like the poor people would be supplicants. There's something that they need. Yeah. All poor in some way or other, whether they're well off financially or not, they're supplicants. There's something that they can't buy for themselves. Yeah, I agree. By the way, Luke's message would have gone really well in Ephesus and Corinth and Athens, where by and like some of our missionaries experience you have your greatest success among the poor people of town and the, and the, and the more rich aren't listening so it, it, the more rich a city was it makes one thing if you're talking about in Capernaum where you might have a few rich people like Jarius it makes a world of difference in Ephesus a rich seaport where there are a lot of rich people and your little band of the way your little band of the church is pretty small and probably financially pretty poor but also poor in spirit 
So, it, it, the, it's the difference in the message. But Matthew is pretty clear. And in fact, when we look at the other versions of, of Matthew, uh, Joseph Smith translation, Blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Even an old Syrian text. Uh, the, the, one of the things that I keep trying to draw on is, it's one thing if we have things coming from Christians like in London and France and stuff like that who are translated into the Greek in America. Um, some of the sources we're looking at involve translations from Syrians and Greeks and Lebanese and stuff who are Christians but have been living the culture. So an old Syrian text even says, Happy is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see that current state of being blessed? You're happy now. You're happy now that you're poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and, and, that it, and so that happens. Okay? Isaiah which is actually where the Savior was drawing from, I believe, and would have made sense to Jewish readers, but not to Gentile readers. That's why Matthew goes more where he goes, Luke goes where he goes. Look at Matthew. He's drawn, this is actually a little bit of a quote from, from the Psalm, or from Isaiah. And to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. So who's the poor? In, who are the poor? As far as Isaiah is concerned, the humble, the repentant, the contrite. Absolutely, those are the poor. And he doesn't say poor in spirit. He just says it's the poor. It's understand to Isaiah, the poor are those that are contrite. They're poor of pride, if that makes sense. Yeah, contrite means bruised. Yeah, and wounded. Right. Yes. They've been through it. This is Isaiah 66, so we're kind of to the end of Hezekiah's reign. They've seen stuff by the time we get to the end of Isaiah. This is the end of the book. Okay, so, all right. So really when we're talking about that, he's, he's trying to emphasize, but I think, I think whether, as the Savior is talking, he wants these, his disciples to say, Here are, here's the kingdom out here. And it consists of the poor. And some are wealthy. They might have brought their own boats. Some have made a long, long trek over here. Here's your poor. And they are blessed because you're bringing the gospel to them. The kingdom has arrived. Okay? Yeah? It seems to me that the poor in spirit don't necessarily have to go to the Lord for their consolation. And he's saying that the blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me. Yeah. Well, those who... Yeah, and she said, isn't it interesting that Joseph would add those who come unto me... Which, which kind of makes sense, because we might say, well, I'm really kind of poor in spirit, so I'm just going to go hiking a lot. <laughs> you know, or I'm just going to go into the woods. Uh, I feel the spirit when I'm out hog hunting. Great. I, I, I feel the spirit when I'm at a Broadway play. I feel the spirit when I'm reading Shakespeare. And he's having to say, no, the gospel, what was the gospel taught to Adam? It was that you were going to have to repent and 
be baptized. I mean, there were certain things. You had to come unto him. You got to make that active coming forward. Okay? In my own mind, by the way, at the end of the, the, this, I, I, I almost picture uh, the baptism started happening in the Sea of Galilee. That wouldn't have... That, that's one of those little things that I, I would like to think that that happened. Yeah. You're stretching? You get called on in here when you stretch. Okay, so that's, that's the poor. Now... Let's talk about this idea of the kingdom coming. It has arrived. It is here. Okay? Which is kind of an amazing kind of thing. Because um, again, we're back here, we're saying, whoops. Blessed are the poor, for they're going to receive the kingdom of heaven. They're, gonna, they're about to receive a kingdom. Now, as one writer said, yes, of course, in one sense, the average first century Jew did believe that Israel's God was already in charge. The Shema, that they re re repeat, our God is God. Our God is the one God. Um, Paul messed with them when he would add, uh, and, Jesus is his, and Jesus is Lord. That's why he got beaten five times. Because <laughs> he kept messing with the Shema. Don't do that. Okay, uh, They knew that Israel's God was already in charge. But she or he already knew with every bone and breath there were all sorts of ways in which God was not in charge. Otherwise, why was the world such a mess? Why were God's people, the Jews, in such trouble? Why were ruthless, coarse, blaspheming foreigners running the show? Why were the Jewish leaders themselves a corrupt lot? <laughs> they were. And why, in the middle of all of it, is my child so sick? Why is my mother crippled? Why did the soldiers kill my son, my cousin, my husband? Surely, if God was really in charge, then all of this, from as far as the eye could see, as to near as one's own family, should be put right. And who else could put it right but a healer that seems to have control over the elements and seems to have and is healing and is saying to you, Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom has arrived. The hardest part I think that they were gonna have to have was A, the the kingdom has come, and B, the Romans are still gonna be here. The kingdom is here in its fullness. And the dang Sadducees are going to still be messing with stuff in the temple. The kingdom that has arrived will not come on a war horse like Judas the Hammer, Maccabees, and cleanse the temple and shoot everybody with arrows. <laughs> and the kingdom of God is going to come on a donkey. And is going to talk about loving your enemies and doing good to those that despitefully use you. The kingdom has come, but it's different. It is a conquering of the of uh, the world in a much different way than you think. I'm not just 
Oh, this time you really were asking a question. Okay. Yeah, so, um, the principle that's kind of hitting me right now is that this is the need for opposition, right? The whole purpose for us to come, I mean, part of God's plan is to create this world, right? And so, yeah. And it boils down to our choice whether we want to look at the wicked, we, I mean, look at all of our sorrow and everything that we have bombarding us, or are we going to choose to follow Him and find the peace and the comfort and the yeah. happiness that comes? But that is a very personal choice for each Yeah. And it comes back to something like that Jeremiah is saying to those that get carried off into, into Babylon. And they're saying, we're crying on the rivers of Babylon, and we, we still weep for Zion. And our, and our leaders messed us up. And Jeremiah is saying, find the peace in the city. For I know the thoughts that I think of you. Thoughts of peace and love. Even though you're still in captivity. We're going to create we're trying to create in the church a kingdom within the world. And it doesn't mean that we're conquering the world and toppling kings and rulers and there's still despots out there doing stupid things. But the kingdom on a in a sacrament meeting in a quorum meeting in a in a in a sisters conference, the kingdom is here. It's arrived. And blessed are we because it's here. And, that, and that's such a shift, and you have to... This is such a paradigm shift for these guys, especially for those in the Galilee who are waiting to get rid of all of these Roman invaders. Now, this is, that's a tough one. So for him to say the kingdom is coming for you is a deal. So, the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Here's another one that's going to be, wow, how is this going to work? Blessed are the meek. Now, um, the, uh, the, the NRSV, uh, the, he's, at, he's, quote, he's pushing on Psalms 37. I'll just read Psalms. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Up here we go, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. You think of earth, what do you think of? Whole earth. But, to a very Jewish audience, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. What land are we talking about? Israel. Israel. And that is really the purpose of what this really was. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit this land. Now, Luke, in taking it to the, to the Greeks, is going to say, this land, or this earth. Because it makes sense to the Greeks, the Mediterranean. One day God will rule over everything. When he comes back, he'll rule over the whole earth. But there's a specific blessing being given to the Jews saying, the meek will inherit this land that has been conquered and conquered and conquered and conquered and conquered. And for most of the history, it's been living under conquer. Hundred years under Saul and David and Solomon and a hundred years under the Maccabees they hold, they hold their own but the rest of the time they're conquered and conquered and conquered somebody else is in control of our land our land that was promised to who? who, who was the original? Abraham. Abraham the Abrahamic covenant was you will get this land everybody else seems to keep getting it but 
Abraham's descendants. Yeah. It did include land. That was one of it was posterity, but it was also land. Right. Okay. Now I want you to tie this back in. If you want to understand what was happening with the early Latter-day Saints, this ought to really resonate. It really should. Okay? Section 57. Where are we going? Okay, out there in Missouri. Therefore, this land, the land of Missouri, is the land of promise, the place of the city of Zion. And then, he's going to tell them, For thus saith the Lord your God, if you will receive wisdom, here's wisdom. If you're listening, here it is. Behold, the place that is now called Independence is the center place, and is a spot for the temple is lying court, which is by the lot, not far from the court. Okay, yeah, got, got, got it. And then, and then he says, and this is where, where Joseph was always just kind of lifted out of his shoes a little bit, and kept broadening his horizons about what is it that this little church is doing in Kirtland in Missouri. And he's going, Therefore, it is wisdom that the land should be purchased by the saints, even unto the line running between Jew and Gentile. I would be like old settlers and the Indians. And the Lord says, now let me give you the bigger picture. Let me tie you back to ancient Israel. And the line is between the Gentiles and those that we're calling Indians and Native Americans but may have some roots to Israel. But I need you to see that there is a land being drawn here and it's going to be for the Jews in this place and that makes it sacred. And the line over here is where the Gentiles are and that's profane. Profane space is not consecrated, uh, consecrated land is inside this sacred space. When you drive up Willow Lane and you're driving along the road, you are driving on profane space. And I'm sure the, the people in the neighborhood would love to hear, oh, we're grateful that uh, you guys live out here in the profane. <laughs> That's nice. Then you turn your, your little car and you cross through the Gates, and what happens? You have now entered sacred space. And life is different inside dedicated sacred space than it is on profane willow. <laughs> and he's de delineating, and even in land, I'm going to give you an inheritance in sacred space, which is consecrated to me. So the next line there then is, it is wisdom that they may obtain an everlasting inheritance in Israel. And it's the same thing that they were hearing in the Sermon on the Mount. One day you'll be able to receive this. Okay, yeah? I think regarding that also, having lived in the independent state, 
they members that are very boastful that it is the geographical center of our country, not only in the last Yeah. Yeah, we're here in the middle, and we're in the sacred space, <laughs> and everybody else is profane. <laughs> yes. By the way, you did that today as you, as, as you were coming up Round Rock. <laughs> profane, profane, profane. Er, sacred. <laughs> yeah. Some people dedicate their homes. Yeah. Does that make their homes sacred space then? Shouldn't our homes be sacred? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, it could be another little sacred spot on profane round rock. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, I I've got I got about ten minutes here. So here here is here I think in this first couple of things to me is is the most profound lesson that comes in all of these first few. Okay, and it's one that I just, when I finally got it, it kind of rocked me on my heels a little bit, and it still does. I'm still in awe of this. The King James Version. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Uh, in the uh, Wayment Version. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst uh, after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew, Joseph Smith's translation, for they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. Wayman has it, and Luke, Luke is reorganizing this thing, and he packages it in a way that I really, really like. I, I love Luke's version. He lifted up his eyes to his disciples and said, Blessed, this is right out of the chute. This is his first lines. Blessed are the poor because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now because you will be filled. Again, he's making it so personal and he's making it so real. You will be filled. Now, Here's, here's the part, kind of buckle your seatbelt just a little bit, okay? The great words sadakah and whatever that is in Greek are both theologically packed. The key to it all that sadakah does not refer to an absolute ideal ethical norm, but is out and out a term relating to relationship. The term righteous doesn't mean a state of being. I, I was non-righteous, now I'm righteous. The term righteous means I, have, I am part of a relationship. Let that sit. So for instance... Jesus is inviting us into a covenant relationship with him. We talk about the baptismal covenant and the sacrament. It's much bigger than that. The brethren have said it's not just the baptismal covenant. It is, it is this big one. 
It is when we, when we enter into this, Jesus is inviting us into a covenant relationship with him. It's an invitation to shape our very desires. His goal is to restore us into beings who are once again uh, comfortable living and growing in his presence. This empowering, ongoing, changing, transforming relationship with the Savior is called righteousness. It's a relationship. How blessed are we to be taught and nurtured inside this dynamic association. Here is where we learn that righteousness is not a call to perfection, but an invitation for healing from all of mortality's woundings. It is an eternity-long embrace, a joyful return after a long absence. We get caught up on the perfectionism side and saying we're perfect or we're not, or we're righteous or we're not. But it's a, it's a little bit, to some extent, it's like saying uh, I'm, I'm married... But, and I have good days and bad days, but I'm still married. <laughs> you know, the relationship is ongoing. So it isn't like we're going to say, I was righteous, but because I failed to do this, I'm now no longer righteous. The Savior is saying to you, you are still righteousness, because righteousness means you're inside my relationship with me. When you accept me, you accept the relationship, and it's ongoing. That's really powerful. So if we, if we back up a little bit, I want you to now, now put it in those terms. Matthew. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after what? A relationship with Christ. For they shall be filled. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst for this relationship, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that relationship, for they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. And Jesus lifted up his eyes to his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, because yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, because you will be filled with my relationship with you. That sense that despite our struggles we're still in this covenant relationship with him should transform us and he says stay in this relationship with me and I don't care if it takes a million years I will make you into somebody who will be comfortable in my presence for eternity think about those that are outside the church or struggling with the church who don't understand that one day he will open the door that they can have a relationship with him. So that, that's why I, I just think this whole, 
idea of this that that this embrace that we call the atonement is really a joyful return after a long absence. That's what the Savior covenant to do in the pre-existence. I will form a relationship with, I will bring them home because I will form a relationship with them. So what King Benjamin was trying to say is, I'm going to give you a new name and you will become sons and daughters of Christ. You are going to be part of a relationship with him on your good days and your bad days. On your sinful weeks and your great weeks. Most of the time, if you've got kids, they may do really dumb things that hurt you and drive you crazy and, and cause you great pain, but they're still your sons and daughters. That doesn't stop. So all of us here are righteous and, and that we're in the relationship. We're in the embrace. And, and that's as he would intend it. So... All right. Uh, I'm not going to go there. Can I say something? Yeah. I just want to shout hallelujah. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> and, we sh and shouldn't we? Yes. And shouldn't we? I mean, so now when the Savior says, let me tell you the good news. The good news is that the Messiah has come. The kingdom has arrived. And the rule giver is here among you and he heals. And not just from a, a, a distant king, but it's one that wants to hold you in an embrace and be in this relationship with him eternally. And I, I, I just think there's no greater news. There's no greater news than that. So, is that plenty for today? Okay. That's probably a really, really good note to end on. I bear you my testimony with all my soul. That's true. That's what he, the Savior wants of us to do is to be able to hold us close. And I bear that testimony to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.